Well, good morning. We are in Psalm 119 again. We are in the 14th stanza. The 14th stanza begins at verse 105. So we're making our way more than halfway now through it. So we're almost... Uh, we're almost at the end. We'll be done with our study by the time the year goes into 2020. So uh, we are almost done. Uh, 14th stanza, starting at verse 105. Let me just read it, and then we'll jump into our lesson for this morning. So uh, the word says, um, Psalm 119, 105. Uh, David is writing, and he says, this might be a very familiar verse to you, actually. Uh, he starts, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Accept, I beseech thee, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage. Forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes all the way, even unto the end. Now, Psalm 119 is uh, a chapter in which we've seen is always applicable. And we've said several times that there's no circumstance which we can endure which God's word does not have a word for us. And I think you can see that really clearly here, just in this first verse of this stanza, or verse 105, where he writes, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He's really speaking to the guiding, the sort of illuminating, the education and enriching power of the word of God, that it is always present to him. It's it's leading him forward. It's guiding his steps. And this is uh, how it always has that significant and present meaning to him. It's what he's relying on to keep him going forward. You know, it's like a flashlight that you, you put right at your feet so you don't stumble. You don't fall into a divot or a ditch or anything. You don't shine it way far in front of you. He says, it's a lamp unto my feet. It's guiding his steps, how he, he can move forward that way. It's guiding him, and it's ordering his future. And it's only the word of God that gives us this sort of hope and endurance to keep pressing forward in a world that is dark. And I think that's what I read when I read that verse. It's, it's not just that the word is a light, it's that he needs the light in a world that is dark. He's using this word of God to keep pressing him forward. Why? Because the world is opposed to what he believes. It's opposed to the word that he has in front of him. He needs this light and this lamp in a world that is opposed to him. You know, there's um, a verse that I like to go to. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. And Paul is writing, and he says, he makes this profound statement. He says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I was writing that in his context, in which he was asserting that men who are opposed to the truth and opposed to the word of God, opposed to the gospel, he says, they will wax worse and worse. Things are going to get worse before they get better. This idea that... Man can progress himself into a better state, that he can do the work that can make himself better, 
that he can sort of bring in this utopia where everyone is just singing kumbaya and getting along is actually very ill-conceived. Why? Because man's nature grows worse apart from God's intervention. See, apart, uh, just going on his own, man going on his own, he pursues and he drives himself into further darkness. It's a, a life that's worse and worse. And this isn't meant to discourage you. But such should energize sort of your witness. Why? Because we have exactly what David has. The light and the lamp of the world. See, the thing is, as Christians, we have been called to re-enter the darkness. He doesn't save us and zap us out of life to live eternally in glory with him. We are saved, and what happens? We remain here. Why? Because we have been called to re-enter the same dark world from which we have been saved and shed and broadcast the light of the world, this lamp that guides and saves and brings other souls into salvation. This is our calling. I think I've used the illustration before, but we are like firefighters that don't sit on the outside just watching the world burn. We go back into the house. To call out survivors, pull out stragglers. We don't go there and just sit and have coffee and partake while the world is burning. We go in there with a mission, with a sense of urgency, with a sense of of wanting to bring out other survivors. And the same is true for us as we are in this world. As we are here glorifying God, how do we do it? We preach the gospel to all creatures, as is our great commission. This is our calling. We engage a sin-sick world with what? With the light of the world. With the light that it shines onto our path and guides our feet. That guides our souls. That drives our hearts to keep pursuing this good news. And broadcasting it and proclaiming it. This is how we imitate God. We imitate God by being the light in a dark world. A light is only useful to us if it invades dark spaces. A flashlight is only really best utilized when it's shining in the darkness. If you just shine it here, it won't make much of a difference. You go outside, uh, like last night, when it got really dark at like 7 o'clock, it'll make a big difference. It makes a big difference. It, It has a lot more utility, and such is our mission, that we venture into the dark world with God's light and lamp always with us. Why? Because God is with us. The Spirit Himself is with us. And this is what I think David is writing about here. He's asserting three, we're going to look at three different areas that I think are enlightened by the Word as we drive and go into the dark world that is opposed to the light. Here are three kind of areas that, is, that are enlightened by the word. Look at verse 106 quickly. Uh, here I think we have our first lesson. is uh, that The word of God enlightens our resolve. Look at verse 106. He says, I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. And look at verse 112. He says, I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. Now, he's resolving here to keep these judgments, and he also says to perform them. He says, to the very end, to all the very end of life. Always, he's going to keep and perform to obey these things that God has told him. This is, this is a bold declaration, <laughs> 
Is it not? He's saying, I'm going to do all of these things, listen, obey, keep them, pursue them to the very end. I'm not going to waver. I'm not going to struggle. He is making this resolution that he's going to obey God's word always. I don't know about you. That's a terrifying resolution. It sounds a lot like one of those New Year's resolutions you would make on January 1st, and then you would not keep it by January 2nd. That it would already be that it hasn't been to the very end. But you've faded out quickly. It reminds me, I'm glad Natalie was able to get this book because there's, I was reading, this is Charles Bridges' um, exposition of Psalm 119. And he's commenting on each stanza as we've been going through as well. And he relays this really fascinating illustration of this Puritan whose name was Samuel Pierce. Now, the Puritans, obviously, if you have any sort of colloquial knowledge of what a Puritan is, they were very doctrinal, they were very devout, and they were very serious about their faith, which is kudos to them. But they often put their devoutness and their devotion in their devotion, so to speak. They were resolving almost in themselves to keep their resolve. And he relays this story, which kind of evidences that to us. So, this is a little footnote. And this is a, the story of Samuel Pierce, and he says, um, it's, a, it's a sort of a biography of him, that Samuel Pierce d- determined formally to dedicate himself to the Lord in the manner recommended in the 17th chapter of a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion. In the form of a covenant, there, there he drew up, he also adopted as his own, and that he might bind himself in the solemn and affecting manner, signed it with his blood. So in this book, he was moved by it so much, because the author was telling him, if you want to really be committed and devoted, sign a literal contract between you and God. This was a practice that some Puritans practiced. They would almost dry up, uh, draw up a contract that we would sign for like a house or something, but it was between he and God, and he signed it with his own blood. That's how serious Pierce was. But then listen to this. Afterwards, he failed in his engagements. He was plunged into the great distress and almost into despair. And on a review of his covenant, Pierce's covenant, he seems to have accused himself of pharisaical reliance upon the strength of his resolutions. And therefore, taking the paper to the top of his father's house, he tore it into small pieces and threw it from him to be scattered by the wind. He did not, however, consider his obligation to be the Lord's as thereby nullified, but feeling more suspicious of himself, he depended solely upon the blood of the cross." I love that. Why? Because in his resolution, he was resolving to obey God, and he signed the contract with his own blood. And what did he realize? (laughs) That that was failing. (laughs) That he couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep up his end of the contract. And what did he realize? That there's another person's blood that is more sufficient for him. There's another person who has made a better covenant than that he could make. It's the covenant of grace with us through God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He, he learned that in a very uh, interesting way, kind of foreign to us. We don't sign contracts with God. Why? Because we have this word in front of us. This is our covenant from God Himself. This is how we can have a resolve that is enlightened by the word. Why? Because we know we can't keep this claim. David's claims here that he's going to keep this thing to the end. I think that he knew he could not keep it. 
And that's not to say that it's an empty vow. It's a vow that he knew that he could only keep it as he's supported and sustained in the Lord himself. Not in his resolve. His resolve is, is supported and sustained by God's resolve for him. This is, is how he can fulfill this vow. Why? He, he's not resolving to keep this vow in himself. He's not relying on his obedience to keep this resolve. He's relying on another's. It's Jesus' obedience. That's what enlightens our resolve for the word. By knowing that the word himself obeyed the law in our stead. This is God's covenant with us. We see this all throughout scripture. Let me read this passage to you. You can turn there if you want, but it's Genesis 15. You might know what this is. This is God's covenant with Abraham. And I love this chapter. Why? Because God is covenanting himself with this man, Abraham, who was formerly an idolater. Uh, he had practiced multiple different, had multiple different gods. And God himself is the one who covenants with Abraham. Listen to what he says in verse 17. And it says, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now that doesn't sound like it means a lot, but it actually means a whole lot. Because in this day, when you wanted to make a covenant, and here they were doing this practice where you made a covenant, you would cut an animal in half. And you would pass between it as if to signify that if I break my vow, this is what's going to happen to me. That's how serious it was. That's how enveloping and serious and significant this vow was. And notice who walks between those pieces of that animal. <laughs> is it Abraham? No. It's a smoking furnace in a burning lamp. It's Jehovah himself is covenanting with himself to bring this about on Abraham's behalf. See, in this significant passage, as we will read throughout the rest of the Bible, that God is both the covenant maker and the covenant keeper with the things that he declares to us. He makes the covenant and he keeps it on our behalf. Why? Because he knew that we could never keep up our end of the bargain. We, like Samuel Pierce, would learn that his failings came quick and came swift in his own resolve, and his own strength. David, as well, knew how incapable and inadequate he was in terms of keeping up this law, this word. It's not his faithfulness. It's not David's faithfulness. It wasn't Abraham's faithfulness that gave them confidence in the promises of God. It's only God's faithfulness to us. Listen to what Bridges, he writes about this. He says, our engagements to God must be grounded on his engagements to us. His faithfulness, not ours, must be our confidence. Such, I think, is what David is getting at. You want a resolve that's enlightened by the word? Let it see the fact that his resolve for us is much stronger and far greater than our resolve for him. And that's how it should be. His blood is what keeps us, not our blood. Our blood on the contract is weak. It's, it's failing. It's frail. His blood is forever. His blood is the seal that he will always keep us. And such is where he writes in verse 111. 
Back in Psalm 119, David writes, Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. They are my heritage. These things that you've testified about yourself, they are my possession. They are my portion, my inheritance. They are mine. The value of this word is made, is, is made all the more clear as we are made aware of our portion in it. He's clinging to this promise, knowing that this promise is his. That these testimonies about this God who would come and deliver us through his own blood, these are his promises. These are the things that he is clinging to. This is how his resolve is enlightened as he is made to see this true and this better blood that would be shed for us, that would keep us eternally. Let me read you a verse. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it really quick. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, where uh, the writer there, he's talking about this idea of a true and a better blood. Uh, 12, 24. The writer says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. He's getting at this idea that the, eight, the blood of Abel was shed. And remember the verse, excuse me, in Genesis where his blood was speaking to the ground, from the ground for Cain's condemnation. Well, we have a better covenant. A blood that speaks a better word. Not of condemnation, but of justification. Because it's a new covenant through the blood of the Son of God himself. This is the, how our resolve is enlightened and strengthened. <laughs> When we see that God's resolve is for us. But look at verse 108. Secondly. Because not only have we have enlightened resolve. We have enlightened service. Look at verse 108. He says. Accept I beseech thee the free will offerings of my mouth. O Lord and teach me thy judgments. So you see here. That this same blood. Which brings us into the fold. Accepts our service. That we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb have now been made free to serve the Lord and worship Him and honor Him. As he says here, with free will offerings. You see, before we were redeemed, before we were brought in, all of our offerings are just piddly self-serving things. They don't do anything for God. As the scriptures say in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before him. Such is our status as we are without God. But with God, you see, he accepts our offerings as they are praiseworthy. And he says your free will offerings. That's a very uh, significant thing because it's not something where he's being coerced into giving God praise to speaking a certain thing to, excuse me, saying a certain thing in order to give God praise. This is a free will offering of praise. He says, offering of my mouth, meaning it's spontaneous, meaning it's voluntary praise. He's not coerced or coaxed. It's an unforced sort of just expression of what he has been made to see, of the resolve of the Lord of God, the Lord God himself. That resolve has this sort of overflowing effect in him to where he's now offering praise freely of his own free will. This is what happens. When we learn of how greatly we've been forgiven, what happens? Praise and worship. 
You want heartfelt praise and worship? Think of how greatly you've been redeemed. You want to sing to God with all of your might and with all of your lungs? (laughs) Think about how great of a fall your Savior took for you. Think about the fact that He Himself has made the covenant and kept it on your behalf. On you who are a sinner and deserve hell. What happened? He snatched you out of that fate and redeemed you and saved you and set your feet upon a rock as the psalmist says. This is the service that God's after. It's the spontaneous kind. And it comes from a soul that has been enlightened to see that his service is accepted. Why? Because God has saved him. It's the overflow of a heart that's been made full on the love and grace of the gospel, of the word, of the resolve God has for us. That's the type of service that he's getting at here. It springs from us reveling and rejoicing in this word that comes to us, this word that enlightens us, this word that speaks to us. It's this word. This word that is a light and a lamp, it, it lets us see here, as he says, verse 111, that these testimonies are the rejoicing of my heart. The theme of his soul was this resolve in his Savior. Was this resolve from his Lord who was keeping him, who was sustaining him, who was supporting him, who was uh, keeping him through all of the, the, the throes, the sufferings, the troubles of life. And such is the last thing we have to look at. Because not only does it enlighten our resolve and our service, but look at verse 107, because it enlightens our faith. So verse 107 says this, thirdly, as it enlightens our faith, 107 says, I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. And look at verse 109. My soul is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. So we've already seen that David has made this resolution to keep God's word of faith to the very end, as he says in verse 112. And he says here that he's, he's resolving to keep it even in very much affliction. He says, I'm afflicted very much. Meaning he has abundant uh, suffering is all around him. He's surrounded by it. Turmoil and strife and struggle and trouble surround him. If you just read David's life, you know that to be true. His life was full of conflict. Was full of, of wars and struggles. Such is why he says in verse 109 that his soul was continually in his hand. Which really is sort of like a a Hebrew euphemism for saying that his life is always in danger. This, This endangerment of his life, this jeopardy that comes upon him is always before him. His soul is always in his hand as if it could be snuffed out in a moment. He's... In the grip of death, he feels like oftentimes. He says he feels trapped in verse 110. That this snare has been laid for him by the wicked, by his enemies. He's feeling plotted against. He feels like this whole thing is against him. That this peril that he feels is always with him. That he can't escape it. But regardless of how hard he tries, that this peril is just following him. It's like a cloud over his head. And yet he can say, 
that I do not forget thy law. Or he says in verse 110, Yet I erred not from thy precepts. Where he can say that I'm resolving to keep this to the very end. Why? How can he make that claim? How can he make that assertion that even under all of this pressure, he's not going to bow to it, that he's not going to lose heart and lose faith? Because he knew who was keeping him. He knew who was holding him. He knew whose resolve was actually keeping him, whose service, in whose service he was. It was God's alone. This was the faith that he was resting in. Not his faith in his own faith. He was resting and putting his faith in God's faith for him. This is how your faith in, the, in these sort of times, these seasons of, of perplexities, of confusion, of trial, of struggle, of grief. How can your faith be made inflexible? By putting it in a person who doesn't move. By putting it in one who has resolved himself to keep you. God, our Savior. That's what keeps your faith even in suffering. Even in affliction. You see, this confession is our confession too. That the word is a light and a lamp unto us. Why? Because it strengthens our hearts. In, yes, in very much affliction. Because this word never leaves us. And never forsakes us. And never casts us off. We are always supported in it. This is our testimony. This is our truth. This light of the word, it never leaves us. It always holds us. It shows us God's providence and God's, uh, God's protection and God's patience throughout all of our days, past, present, and future. It shows us that they're all held together by His great faithfulness, as the book of Lamentations says. His great faithfulness for us. This is, excuse me, this is our hope. This is our resolve. That we have this light of the word. This light of the world we might even say. As Jesus himself says that he is. He's the light of the world that has come into this dark place. To redeem it. Not to destroy it. But to make it new. And such is the light that's in us. So as we go into the dark world, as we go into it to uh, try and bring out more save, uh, survivors and strugglers and sinners, we go with this light inside of us, which enlightens our resolve and our service and our faith for Him, even in the darkest of places. Let us pray.